Punisher, Season 2, Episode 10, The Dark Hearts of Men. Welcome back, fellow Defenders. This is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 216, about The Punisher, season 2, episode 10, The Dark Hearts of Men. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hi, I'm one of your other hosts, John. And rounding out this fabulous trio, I'm Chris. Welcome back, Chris. We missed you last episode. Yes, unfortunately, the uh, the actual paying day job whisked me away to other countries. Nice. Um, but I'm back now, um, at least for the next week and a half. Well, it's good to have you back, and for an excellent episode. Yeah, no, it, this was uh, definitely something. Yeah, it really was. I don't want to spoil it. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah. We're going to get into our spoiler-filled thoughts about this episode. Make sure that you've obviously watched episode 10 and all the episodes beforehand. I presume you're going to watch all the episodes beforehand, but make sure you've watched all of them uh, before you listen to the rest of the podcast. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, as usual, you can subscribe over at our website at defenderstvpodcast.com. And if you want to share your thoughts about any of the episodes, we want to hear from it. We've only got four more episodes left of The Punisher, so we want to hear your thoughts. So go over to our website and leave us a voicemail, DefendersTVPodcast.com, or, of course, email us at feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com. Yes, without further ado, on to our spoiler-filled review. Derek, what are some of the episode details for Episode 10, The Dark Hearts of Men? Well, the episode, once again, written by Steve Lightfoot, the showrunner of the show, and Angela Domana. Uh, Angela Domana has been on the show uh, since the beginning of Season 1. She wrote Scar Tissue earlier this season as well, uh, and last season it was Episode 9. She did uh, Front Towards Enemy. Um, a really interesting one. I'm going to say this now. I was meant to say it last episode because Steve Lightfoot also joined the writing credits for last episode. It did feel a little bit like the showrunner of the show set up so much in those first two episodes with the introduction of John Pilgrim, the man in black, as we were calling him at the time, and the family of the Schultz. And it feels like he got to episode eight and was going, hey, lads, do you want to actually refocus on the bad guy that I set up for you at the beginning of the season? Oh, OK, right. I'm going to actually write some scenes about that character to bring him back in to make sure the season isn't also about Billy Russo again like season one. It does feel like he kind of took the reins back from his writing staff. I know that's not how it works in the writer's room, but the showrunner always gets the criticism if a show goes off the rails a bit, and it just feels like he reined them back in and went, this is what I wanted the series to be about, and that's why he's getting his writing credits right now. What do you guys think? I don't really know. I mean, it's nice to have that reconnect with the Schultz, um, and I I think... uh I don't think they would ever say something like that in any kind of official capacity. But to be honest, I just feel it's great to have the showrunner being involved in the writing because, I mean, we've always said that, you know, the start episode, the end episode, most of the Marvel Netflix Defenders have, has included the, the showrunner um, writing the, those sort of, you know, the big intro and the big outro mm-hmm. of, of these um, series. Uh, for me... I don't see any reason why they cannot be writing or co-writing every episode um, in that sense. I do think that Chio Hadari Koka has, you know, been, or you've felt his touch much more through the, the, the season uh, on both his season one and his season two as well. So I, I don't really have too much of a problem, but I do think though that however it's come about, there has been this reset um, where we've got the Schultz and the Pilgrim being a bit more front and centre. Yeah, I suppose my complaint for like five or six episodes to the point where I was saying if I wasn't podcasting about it, I probably would have turned it off. They've all been solved in the last two episodes by bringing back in those characters that were set up at the beginning of the series. The ones that we were going, oh, this is exciting. I really want to see this. And then they just dropped off the face of the earth for the rest of the series. You know, So it feels like Steve Lightfoot getting a writing credit is, is different from being the showrunner. Getting He is the showrunner. He signs off on every single episode that goes out there. It is his responsibility. But getting a writing credit means he sat down with the writer, broke the back of the story, and put together the characters for that specific episode. So um, that's why it feels a little bit like he went, all right, I'm taking this back a bit towards what my vision for the series was. I'm right there with you on this. My worry is is it too little too late because he now we've got some further explanation Mm -hmm. on these characters that were set up at the beginning but we've got three episodes left in order Mm -hmm. to make you care care in that either from an antagonist point of view or protagonist point of view or etc 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 
uh, understand deeper the storyline and have a, a satisfying ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've still got to kill off Billy. Like, there's a lot to do now in three in three hours, yeah. and I'm starting to feel, if this was any other show, and this was, like, say, two episodes earlier, maybe even, I'd be like, mm-hmm. ah, I don't think he kind of came in and grabbed the reins again. But I'm starting to think slightly that this might be, it might be what had have happened at this point, which is we've spent too much time digging back into Billy. We need to go back to what the original vision for this season was. Yeah, absolutely. What was probably supposed to happen was Billy was going to be the tertiary or secondary kind of villain and that the Pilgrim was the first, the primary. Mm-hmm. And I think they what ended up happening is they've kind of wandered and that's ended up flipping. I think if that's definitely the case where he was, you know, a tertiary kind of uh, character in this, or, or as you say, a secondary villain, well, then there has been a little bit of wonder here um, on, on the writing. And it is good for uh, Steve Lightfoot to, to to pull it back, or indeed Steve Lightfoot and Angela Lamana and Ken Christensen uh, previously. I think, um, and but that would be, yeah, it, it's a little... Uh, concerning because I, I do think, like you, Derek, I kind of started to just kind of lose a little bit of focus uh, and interest in it, where it was focused so much on um, the the main antagonist from season one in terms of Billy Russo, yeah. and also drawing out his and Doctor Dumont's kind of storyline. You know, this this episode we got a really nice moment here with du- Doctor Dumont, and I really. Um, that could have happened earlier for me as yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely. Again, these are obviously just opinions based on the fact that the credits for Steve Lightfoot have been brought into episode 9 and 10. Normally we don't see the showrunner appear unless they are taking the full reins of the show like we saw in Defenders. Um, but just interesting to see what's going on here. I think it's the right choice to refocus the episodes. Um, while I know Billy's great and while I know that Ben Barnes is a wonderful actor and he's doing a brilliant job on this show, it just feels like they've given way too much of the show over to that character when there's so much else they could be talking about. Anyway, great to have Angela Manon back as well on the show. Um, Another person back who we absolutely love now. I'm going to put it out there, guys. I think this might be one of the best Defenders directors. Alex Garcia Lopez, uh, the the director who who did the excellent episode of Daredevil Season 3 with the 10-minute prison price, the guy who came up with that idea. And then also that season did the Karen Page flashback episode that both myself and John called out as one of our favorite episodes from the season in Daredevil Season 3. I have to say, the minute I saw his name come up, I kind of sat back in my chair, relaxed, and went, this is going to be a great episode. <laughs> Yeah, right there with you. He's making a name for himself as a very versatile director who can actually do the more character-driven pieces, but mm-hmm. then really come for gold when it comes to um, like this these action pieces. So in this episode, and obviously Daredevil, and then that Karen Page flashback was the character-driven mm-hmm. um, kind of style. So he, he's very versatile, but very strong at what he does. Yes, watch, yeah. watch for him to make that jump to showrunner at some time in the future. Maybe not on the Marvel Netflix shows, but maybe on a Netflix show or possibly on one of the uh, Marvel Plus or Disney Plus yeah. streaming service shows in the future. Uh, yeah, no, I, th- I think um, he's uh, been fantastic. I think he's really brought a distinct style to the, the stuff that he's done on the Marvel Netflix uh, universe. Really, mm-hmm. So, yeah, really pleased to have him back. Yeah. Well, John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for the episode? Sure. A vicious fight with his former neo-Nazi gang members leaves Pilgrim with multiple injuries. He's not just bruised, battered and broken, but is dislocated, slashed and has teeth in his forehead. The brutal encounter pushes him back into old habits, though, as he falls back into drugs, prostitutes and alcohol during his recovery. And he begins to doubt his divine purpose. Elsewhere, as Dina Madani and Dr. Krista Dumont debate the merits of who's worth saving over wine, wine and more wine, Frank, along with Curtis, stake out and prepare to storm Billy Russo's base, Valhalla. Little do they know that in turn they are being watched. Frank and Curtis enact their plan against Russo, and blood ensues. In the gunfight, as Frank hunts down Russo, he blindly fires on an office in Valhalla, killing three innocent women, and Curtis is traumatised by killing one of the former veterans. As the police arrive, Frank is rocked by guilt, and we discover the work of Dr. Dumont behind the events that played out. To destroy Frank Castle, destroy his sense of moral superiority. A really, really interesting episode this time. So much great stuff in here. 
And I know we talked about it just before we went uh, and started recording our podcast. I suppose the biggest line at the beginning of this episode is the idea that this is 24 hours earlier. This discussion with Madani and uh, and Dr. DeMont is 24 hours early. We mentioned last episode when myself and John were talking about it, we couldn't see the motivation behind why Dumont was having Madani over to her apartment. We were wondering whether it was something to do with her agoraphobia, that she didn't want to go out the door, and that's why she's stuck inside and has Madani come over. Well, it's not. It's because Billy's listening into the whole thing and waiting for her to break Madani and get the information out of Madani she needs. So we did mention something about that, but didn't get it exactly right. And if you missed that it was 24 hours beforehand, you might not have gotten how important this conversation was, I suppose. Yeah, it really is important that uh, it's 24 hours because ultimately this is about the dissection of Frank Castle and, mm-hmm. and it's done in a way, and I suppose this brings us on to bullet point one, some free therapy for Madani. Um, you know, this is, you think it's therapy for Madani mm-hmm. um, and you, you, you feel it's a relaxed chat uh, but at the end, and you're wondering about the motives of Dr. Dumont. I mean, I think I was thought it was because of the green-eyed monster and, and yeah. jealousy. Yeah, and it, it seemed as though she was, um, you know, becoming insecure about him reconnecting with Madani here. Not obviously long-term, but just, you know, he, he was talking about her all in the forefront of, of his mind. So you're really wondering what was going on here. And, of course, having that... 24 hours um, earlier really plays into this. She was doing undercover ops, really. Mm -hmm. She was, you know, diagnosing Frank Castle. What is his psychology? Um, Using Madani, who knows both Billy and Frank, in order to get her diagnosis, which she ultimately then reports back in to Billy to enact then his plan um, to turn around the surprise attack that Frank and Curtis are doing. Mm-hmm. I very much assumed bad things were going to happen to Madani constantly mm. through this. I was right. expecting the the, yeah. the wine to be drugged. I was expecting <laughs> Billy or someone to pop out. I was expecting yeah. Dumont to go full-on psychotic and attack mm-hmm. Madani. I didn't know. I was just constantly expecting something to happen. It was too perfect, and you know what I mean. It was like yeah. the too, too. It was too, too relaxed. Much like, it was too relaxed. It was too like an actual session of therapy. And I was just like, no, this is gonna go badly, Madani. Get the hell out. Just I was expecting the cliche of the the drugged wine, and then Madani <laughs> going, "What's in it?" and stumbling and spilling the wine, and then you see Dumont right. in that kind of hazy camera shot. <laughs> but then when Madani left, I was like, "What? The, oh, she got what?" I don't get yeah, it. And how's it, Billy gotten there? <laughs> yeah, and then it was just, yeah. So I had missed the twenty-four hours earlier. So then when Madani leaves and Billy's there, I'm like, "What the hell?" Uh-huh. I'm like, "I don't yeah, absolutely." Oh, I'm like, then it kind of all started. And when she goes, "I know how to do it," I'm like, "Okay, it's all coming back to me." Okay, I get mm-hmm. it. I see the pattern. Um, look, this is a really interesting mechanic when you have a trained psychologist mm-hmm. and you want to break people well if your psychologist can give you that insight into the innermost working of your enemy you know that whole kind of the art of war by sun tzu where like the rule is like know thy mm-hmm. enemy well that's exactly what B- billy can literally just like send dumont in and try and find things out and she will basically find the innermost weak point of each of the... Because she can now take down Madani. She knows how to break Madani. Mm-hmm. And she now knows, at the, the end of this free treatment session, how to break Castle. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a really good, um, as you say, mechanic to have this angle on how to turn the tables on Frank Castle. I think it's really, really good. Um, again, like you were saying, Chris, I was half expecting... Billy to walk in the door whilst they were having the conversation because I'd missed the the subtitles um, of the 24 hours later. So I was constantly afraid that Madani was, yeah, in this trap just being kept there by Dumont until uh, Billy Russo comes home or something else to happen to her. And then, of course, he, he turns up from the spur bedroom yeah. um, and I was like having to go yeah. like, what? what's what's going on here? But <laughs> even just that interweaving of the different timelines to be yeah. in the present and back 24 hours with, with this couple was really nicely done. You know, you, you suddenly realize um, that... 
it's a really clever way of doing it because as well the one thing that billy does know is that frank will come for him you know he is this charging bull uh and that's why i kind of like that he uses his knowledge about frank and then gets his really deep insight into frank's uh mental makeup through madani mm-hmm. uh so that uh, it, it's a really nice sort of layered approach to him reversing this surprise attack. Absolutely. And I really like how DeMont describes it because it's coming from her perspective as well. She's, she's basically saying we need to take away Frank's idea that he's better than you because you're better than him, Billy, kind of thing. It's like, that's not what Frank feels. Frank doesn't feel he's better than Billy. He feels that Billy's a maniac who needs to be put down. There are, there are two different things, but it's basically taking Frank down to his level, turning him into a murderer who kills indiscriminately, is what Madani's found out. The only other thing about that 24 hours before, I was wondering if that was just an indication of how many bottles of wine it would take to uh, to get Madani to spill her guts completely, because they did seem to go through <laughs> so many bottles. It's like, well, how many hours did Madani actually spend in the presence of of, uh, of Devant? Was it like six or eight hours with you know a case of wine that they drank? It's it's one of those <laughs> free flowing dinner parties mm-hmm. where someone just keeps topping up your your wine glass, yeah. and by the end of it, it's like. You're either face down in tiramisu or you're kind of fast asleep on the sofa because you've just had way, way too much uh, to drink without really realizing it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering if therapy sessions ever slow down, if they ever need to encourage more people to come over. They should could just go with free wine. Come join and have a session of therapy with free yeah. wine. Well, that's it. Loose lips, sink ships. <laughs> Let's get on to bullet point number two, guys. Um, because this, I thought, was one of my favourite things that happened within this episode, a broken pilgrim. Um, we saw Pilgrim at the end of last episode getting his real name back. We got we got the mention of him being called Robbie or Robert last episode by Cusack, the former leader of the gang that he was involved in before he went off and redesigned his life effectively. And we saw him surrounded by the whole gang. And at this time, we find Pilgrim beating his way out of the bar and killing every single person around him. This is a fantastic fight. And I absolutely have to give total credit to uh, Alex Garcia Lopez for his shooting of this fight. This is exactly what I was talking about back in the fight with the Russians in the gym, uh, where the camera was focusing on the wrong thing for too long, trying to make it look brutal. In this episode, we absolutely see hugely brutal things, but we see it cutting to... Pilgrim in the future taking teeth out of his head rather than it focusing (laughs) on the guy losing his teeth and smiling broadly for a couple of minutes at the camera to show you how brutal this was and the guy actually lost his teeth in the fight, that kind of stuff. It was so well shot and so well put together. I absolutely give the credit here to the director for having this whole flashback sequence of the Pilgrim sitting on his bed looking at all the wounds he's gotten and and flashing back to the actual fight. I thought it was beautifully put together. Yeah, the the interweaving of these different, um, the during and the after of the fight was really nicely done. And mm-hmm. as you say, it, it kind of added more weight to the fight because, you, you know, he's got teeth in his forehead, he's been slashed by a knife, he's had his jaw dislocated, he's been beaten, he's bruised and battered. Uh, you know, he's taking the, the drugs to try and uh, numb the pain, he's drinking the booze to numb the pain, and it's just, it lends more weight to that fight. You see the hurt that, that he's going through, and just how it was intercut was really nicely done. Yeah, this was great. Mm-hmm. And when he's beating Cusack um, with the knuckle duster, it focuses on Pilgrim. Exactly. It doesn't focus on the tearing of the flesh, mm-hmm. the rending, which you would, which we saw pretty much in the uh, the gym fighting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when I was watching this, I very much thought of you guys, and I thought of the, the, what we had discussed before, because mm-hmm. this is so different. Yeah. It is as violent. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he headbutts the guy back again. And that's where the teeth come from. Yeah. He gets stabbed, but we don't see it slicing. But we just see him, like, touching a stab wound. Yeah. So it's just, it was very well conceived. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's really nice about this as well is it bookends this episode. So here you have that moral superiority of the pilgrim being dashed on the rocks. You know, he's suddenly, um, he's been in contact with his old self, this brutal encounter with Cusack and the gang. And all of a sudden, he's there with prostitutes, liquor, and drugs, um, doubting what he's doing. Um, Mm. Having these flashbacks to his wife, 
I mean, it seems like he does pull himself back towards his purpose a bit, but there's certainly he, you know, has gone from the last episode where he refuses the drink that Cusack offers him to uh, quite enjoying the the drink here, possibly just to take the pain away, but he's being exposed to it. Yeah. And I, I love that kind of degradation of where he came from. And it, it kind of just reflects towards the end where Frank, uh, with everything that happens to Frank, um, and how, uh, as we said, with the, the the free therapy session for Madani, how um, Dumont uses the situation, they construct the situation in order to rob Frank of his superiority. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I do think it is Pilgrim returning to himself. I'm not too sure whether it's him realizing he's done anything wrong here, actually. He's done exactly the same thing as Frank did when Frank visited his wife's grave. He's created in his mind his wife saying, it's okay, I'll be here for you when you return after this mission that you're on. It seems like he's created another round of forgiveness for himself for doing the things he felt he had to do, just like Frank did. Created yeah. this piece of forgiveness from a wife who's been dead for two years, you know? Um, that's it. This is exactly what you talked about, Chris, back in episode five or six, that you wanted to see Pilgrim being the evil version of Frank. You want to see the Russian being the evil version of Frank, sorry. This is the Pilgrim being the evil version of Frank now. We're finally getting the two of those these guys being the mirror image of each other. And then we also have Billy as well, of course, being another mirror of Frank. But we already saw that in season one. So we're finally getting these mirror images of each other between these two characters who both feel they're in the right and both have a family behind them in their minds telling them that what they're doing is okay. We accept you for doing this. It's only one time. It'll be grand kind of thing. Pilgrim is closer to Frank Castle than Billy is now. So like like we, we see and we'll talk more about it later uh, where Billy and Zach's revenge later on during this episode, he doesn't do the brutal fight. Mm -hmm. He's not involved. Yeah. He's commanding. Whereas, what we see with Frank Castle or with John Pilgrim, uh, or Robbie, I should say. We've got so many names in this season. I know. <laughs> it's just like, we, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> they are the, the violent in on it together. Like, they, they, it, they are the front line. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Billy is now more, he's no, he, he has ties to Frank. They are related. They are brothers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, they are no longer similar. Yeah, Billy's changed a lot, and he should have. After season one uh, of the yeah. show, he should have had a change, even not just losing his memory. There is also a different type of character that we're seeing in season two. Um, just wanted to mention that whole bit with the uh, with the partying businessman next door uh, from Pilgrim, who kind of breaks Pilgrim's thoughts about what's going on, him reconnecting with his wife and his mind with getting himself drunk on the whiskey and taking the coke. Um, it is interesting that he goes through another round of... Um, brutality, I suppose. We don't see any of it at all, but I can only assume from the scene that's left behind in the room uh, that there has been another round of violence from the Pilgrim here. This guy, Bob Wick, is on some kind of book tour. Uh, you see a sign in the room and you see a box of books that that have his name on them. Um, he's doing that and obviously sleeping with a lot of women around him. Um, Pilgrim pushes himself into the room, gun in the guy's face, and later you see Pilgrim sitting on the bed after having some a service from one of the uh, one of the prostitutes that was in the room with Bob Wick, um, and you see all of Bob's stuff all over the room. You see the sign falling on the floor. You see the box of books turned over with books lying everywhere. So it feels like possibly Bob has been made to disappear in that room. Um, there might have been another round of violence, but we don't see it. And I do think we're probably going to get the answer to that next episode. That's probably going to be where it picks up. We'll find out whether Bob lived or died or whether he was just kicked out of the room and told to leave his prostitutes and, and uh, coke and, and alcohol behind. <laughs> Do you think the Pilgrim picked up one of the self-help books um, and, and read it just to kind of get him back on track for when he next meets the show? <laughs> maybe. maybe. <laughs> yes, the books are self-help books from Bob Wick, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Chicken soup for the soul, or in this case, uh, lots of cocaine for the nose. Exactly. Well, it is kind of interesting, obviously. We have Madani and Dumont going through their therapy, and now we have Pilgrim with a self-help guru next door who takes some kind of therapy, I guess. from He receives from some therapy, I think. He does. He does. Yeah, that was a weird scene. Just seeing like the, the crying woman look up and then is replaced by his very ill wife, who yeah. still looks like she's been crying. So he's yeah. imagining her still being having cried. So that was the weirder. I'm like, oh, this man is troubled. 
Yes, capital time. <laughs> <laughs> but it was phenomenal stuff, I mean, to see this breakdown, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something that we've wanted to see for episodes, just more development of this character. It is really interesting that we see the flashbacks to him talking to his future wife at the time. He's basically his proposal to her, where he's about to get down on one knee, is, my name's actually not John Pilgrim. I've done loads of bad things. I've killed loads of people. You name the sin, I've done it. And she says to him, well, are all, is that person still inside you? And he goes, I'm kind of afraid that it is. I'm kind of afraid that person is in there. But with your love, perhaps I'll be able to keep it at bay. And she forgives him and agrees to marry him. And here he is having let all of those sins back out, you know, sitting on the bed wondering, what does he tell his wife, I guess? And she also says, you know, just finish this so that you can come back to me. So it it is almost this implicit, uh, I've given you the grace to go forward and be a psychotic maniac Mm. um, and now come back to me to feed me the chicken soup for my soul whilst, you know... I'm on my deathbed. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think it's really just great stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um, I must say, yeah. I can't really say much more about it. I just thought it was just so good. Yeah. 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 I, I, I'm just, I, I want to see more and I'm hoping we have enough time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's, exactly. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so gentlemen, I think unless you have anything else that you want to speak about Pilgrim, I say we move on to our next bullet point. Yeah. Our next bit of therapy, really. Uh, between two real real best friends, right? Uh, bullet point number three, another stakeout, Frank and Curtis. Um, I really like this scene. I really like having Frank and Curtis connect together. Yeah. They've, they've been so good throughout the season. You got a lot of sense of who Curtis was in season one. He's the kind of moral um, core of this group of people. But I kind of like the scene with Frank where he's saying, you're the only person I really ever cared about, Curtis, because you were doing something different than all of the rest of the people that I met in the army. Everybody else there was trained to kill. You were trained to put people back together, which made you special to me as a character. Something that you never hear talked about very often. And I think what is really interesting about season two of The Punisher is they've employed a lot of veterans of wars, a lot of veterans of, uh, of the Gulf War, a lot of people that now work in the industry who have had these experiences and it feels like you hear their voice come through occasionally in things that Frank says, you know, he says here at the time when we were at war, I would have laid down my life for any of those men around me. I would have taken a bullet for any one of them, but in the real world, when different things come into play and when they are their normal selves in the real world, I wouldn't lay down my life for any one of them except for Curtis. It's really interesting. It's a, it's a something that doesn't come out very often when you talk about former veterans of, of wars. Yeah, it, it is um it's the opposite side of that you know once a marine always a marine we've always got your back this mm-hmm. is kind of saying the the reverse or the opposite of that that um ultimately i can stay with you if you're someone like curtis or i can um just forget about you and actually you don't really mean that much to me it was that situation of having to survive that pulled us together exactly one of the other things is Curtis is from a different service, isn't he? He's not a Marine like Billy and Frank. Isn't he something like from the Navy? No, Curtis was part of the team, but he was the medic on the team. He Ah, wasn't trained to kill. He wasn't the guy that was supposed to be going out on the missions. He was there to make sure that they were taken care of if any of them got injured. So he was always... So that's why he's kind of been able to patch up um, Frank uh, reasonably often. I think he patched him up in season one uh, before they took him off to Madani's father to get fixed up. Um, we saw Curtis taking care of him uh, in, in season one. Okay. There's a little bit of difference. And the other thing that Frank is saying here as well is Billy's using this idea of brotherhood between all of the people who were in the Marines or in the army before. He's using that idea of brotherhood to make them do what he wants them to do. And Frank's saying he'd never get me with that because I don't have that kind of feeling for anybody. Yeah. Um, actually, Curtis wasn't a Marine, though. He was the group's remember that the Kandahar group was mm-hmm. brought together from Air Force, Marines, uh, Army Corps. Um, so I think Curtis, I, that he, he's from, he's the medic in the Army Corps. Right, right. I, I, I did enjoy this. I really did enjoy this kind of conversation. Um, it, what I'm noticing more and more from this relationship is, oh my God, it's one-sided. <laughs> Curtis gives so much of Frank takes 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 <laughs> but he calls frank on it and i'm starting to notice frank is becoming more reliant on curtis if you will 
Well, it was just like he in that before it was like Curtis, do as I say, mm-hmm. like just you're my friend, you're gonna do it anyway. I'm not gonna listen to you. Whereas now he seems to be receptive to Curtis's advice and kind of overall discussions. Yeah, yeah. I think possibly where we left Frank at the end of season one might have helped that. Remember, the, the whole season ended off with Frank actually going into therapy for a while, actually going in and joining that that help group that Curtis had set up, you know. Um, so perhaps that decision to Frank's at the end of season one to allow some help has set him up to have these kind of conversations with Curtis where he is listening to him a little bit. Uh, I do know what you mean, though. Without Curtis here, you know, this entire plan doesn't work, right? And the same as the plan to take down Billy... Outside of the uh, the place he was he was robbing from with all of his gang, that plan wouldn't have worked without Curtis. So Curtis has become much more of a feature of Frank's life this season, definitely. And Frank's saying to him now, this far into the season, that he didn't want him to be involved. Well, he's been involved the whole time. He's been on the run, effectively. He's had to change his address. He's had to have his girlfriend up in a hotel for the last couple of weeks while Billy's been around and while Frank's been around. You know, it, he's heavily involved here. At least Frank is kind of apologizing to him, I guess. But definitely taking a lot from him yeah i must say it's a really nice moment when uh curtis is is calling his his girlfriend um saying i'm really full of colds he's coughing and there's frank has just arrived and is like looking at him just chuckling sort of giving him hassle because he he, you know he's having to spin a story to keep her away from this craziness Mm -hmm. uh but I, i really like that moment where they connect with with that as well because yeah you're right Curtis is giving up a, an awful lot uh, to help Frank. Excellent. You know, I thought that was him calling in sick to work. <laughs> I assumed that was him calling into the insurance company that he works for going, I can't come into work. Nobody would want to catch this disease that I've got, this uh, terrible bout of, uh, of sickness that I've got. I thought that was the joke that it's like, you know, three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. How do characters in TV shows always get off work at times when the rest of us are all sitting in our office for another four hours? <laughs> you know, uh, I thought it was just that little joke that you actually have someone calling in sick to work because they're off on a stakeout with Frank. But that's interesting. Yeah, it could be just his girlfriend. That he's I gone. think it was. I'm sure it was. But um, I know he says to Frank that that thing at the end where he just goes to Frank, um, you know, the rest of us have lives to go back to when this is all over. I do still need to have a life and I have to make sure it's maintained. We can't just, you know, pay insurance companies. A lot of people don't have someone like you in their life ruining it for them. Frank, I have to kind of take care of my real world around me. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm right there with you. I thought it was him calling it to work sick. And I was just <laughs> laughing. I was just like, yeah, but we, I think, I think everyone has looked forward to use a mental health day with work in their careers of life. <laughs> and you've just gone, what's the quickest way I can get out of work? Yeah, I've got a bug. You don't want to catch. I'm just sitting on the <laughs> toilet. Like uh, this is, it's coming out of both ends. You just, no one wants to be near me. Just give me 24 hours. Um, yeah. Um, what was it? Rampant diarrhea. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and even Frank going, you even use the voice. That's hilarious. <laughs> really good. But what's really interesting here, obviously, and again, connected with that 24 hours later, we know Billy's been watching on the whole time, watching Frank and Curtis looking over his uh, Valhalla, his club with all of his gang there. Billy's standing directly above them on another building, watching everything they do and watching every move they make, knowing that if he stays there long enough, he'll know what their plan is going to be. Well, how did they not spot Billy spotting them? Like, that was the bit that I was like, oh, really? Billy was standing there. It's not like he was, like, just poking his <laughs> eyes up over a ledge to watch It's very dark park. at night. But, but he did have a telescopic, he had a telescopic uh, sight, so he could have actually been quite a way away. Okay, okay, okay. I was just like, Frank and Curtis, Curtis is a sniper. Yeah. Uh, or has at least good sniping skills. Kid. Yeah, uh, I was like, really? They're not ca- okay. All right. I was like, I know where this is going now, but like, all right. Um, <laughs> well, they look at the opposite direction. They're never, they're never looking up. They're not expecting anybody to be looking at them. But yeah, they should be checking all four points. We see, we see that Frank is very good at doing that when he walks into every single room he walks into. Yeah. Frank leaves the building a few times. Curtis leaves the building a few times. They come back up, but I'm assuming that Billy is hiding himself out when there's any moment that. They could see, uh, could see him, and he's only, he's only seen up there at night. He's wearing all black clothes. He's got black hair and a black beard. You know, he is quite shadowed up on that building, and again, using the tele- telescopic lens as well, uh, watching on. There is that moment, though. I loved how it was put together, where you saw Curtis using the sniper rifle with um, with the sniper uh, sight 
den on the building and then you get the pan back to another what you think is another sniper site looking on at Frank and and uh, and Curtis so you're thinking uh oh someone's gonna fire and then the camera pans around and it's actually just a camera in the hands of of Billy he's not got a sniper rifle on them it's just a camera yeah quite cool yeah like that. I did think there was a part where Frank was scoping the the during the day, and he mm-hmm. looks up at the two towers, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Does he actually know that's that where Billy was?" Um, because that where that's where Billy was. I think he was on the top of those kind of two circular towers. Okay. Um. So I was thinking, does this Frank know? Does he know? So he doesn't. I don't think. No. I, this no. is like I think it was just. Maybe it was supposed to be, oh, he thought that would be a cool place to scope to, but he decided against it. Yeah. And I'm just like, all right, okay, not really explained, but anyway. Yeah. Well, let's get on to the attack then. Um, that is our next bullet point, bullet point number four, the attack that Frank has been setting up in Cur- with Curtis. Um, so kind of an interesting one. We get to a certain time of the night. We have this whole plan that they've come together over the course of the two or three days. We see Frank obviously is getting a little bit more patient than he was the last time they had to do a stakeout. Uh, they've waited two or three days to see the general way that this gang have been taking care of themselves, that they the girls come in at about 10 o'clock. So at about quarter past two, the gang are still there. And Curtis sets off the bombs to draw at the guards while Frank goes in through this underground tunnel. Um, interestingly, we see Curtis laying down cover fire using the sniper rifle. He's not sniping anybody. He's not specifically targeting anybody. He's actually targeting away from them to draw them closer and closer and away from the gate, um, which makes the final moment for poor Curtis even worse, that he has actually hit somebody. He's hit Philip, one of the crew that was a founding member of, the, of Billy's gang. He's hit him in the leg, and he dies from his injuries because of this shot from Curtis. Um, this is a really bad moment for Curtis. He never wanted to be involved in the first place. He's a healer, as Frank has described him, and you can see how how broken he is as a character when, uh, when Philip dies. Yeah, it's a really nice moment where Curtis is struggling with what he's just done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, he purposefully went for the, the, the leg yeah. to try and prevent him from dying. But maybe he cut one of the main arteries uh, or veins in the leg or something like that. Or maybe Philip's just a weakling because, I mean, the amount of punishment that uh, Frank gets. I mean, <laughs> that that's sometimes one of the few things that kind of... Um, it's not that it annoys me, but it's just, you know, the different levels of violence and the ability of the person to survive it, mm-hmm. um, obviously kind of has no real pattern or correlation. It's just, it is very much story driven. But I do like the fact that here that, you know, it really has a meaningful story drive here for Curtis. Yeah. Uh, and again, it, it's one of those things where it reflects what's happening to Frank in in this moment uh, inside Valhalla as well. They're both struggling with what they've just done. And I, I think that is what's really nice about this. And I think you have these points throughout this episode. And I think that's what's made it really, really interesting, really, really engaging, is that you have these different counterpoints mm-hmm. happening all the way through this episode. And I really, really like that. I mean, even with the uh, the big kind of audiovisual fight that uh takes place between frank and the veteran gang here this is fantastic um it's just a really different way of doing the fight scene and showing this violence and i think it was really really nice and again it, it reflects onto the 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 nightmare dreams that um billy has had about the punisher you know this 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 mask this 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 skull coming out of the darkness in his dreams and that's what he's he's trying to do here with frank the these different face masks yeah. coming out and, and providing punishment uh on him uh, so I, I thought that was really nicely done uh for sure yeah this scene really reminds me of the alleged techniques used in some of the u.s torture uh camps um across the world and again i'm saying alleged but like it's probably used everywhere but this kind of high frequency the kind of high audio disorientation not knowing Mm -hmm. like those multiple lamps going on and off with the high music blaring to hide for falls it was really interesting Mm -hmm. it really was wasn't it yeah it would have been great if it was with defenders tv podcast (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. We wouldn't be able to disorient any, anybody down. <laughs> With a big audio of rounding out the group. <laughs> He's, and if you see Frank Castle going, ah, ah, where, where are they? Why are they making stupid jokes? But it was just, it was so interesting to see. It was. And I like the way, as, as you said, John, I like that it is mirroring the visions or the, uh, the, the nightmares that Billy's been having for the last year. It's like as if he set it up to go, well, this is how I've been seeing Frank in my brain, and Frank is going to be seeing me in his brain. Uh, even though he doesn't throw one punch, he doesn't uh, use a knife, he doesn't have a gun uh, while Frank is in this room, it seems like entirely his plan with everybody around him. You see that inspirational speech that Billy gives to his gang earlier on going, I know this is personal for me, but I want to make sure it's for all of us. We're doing this for all of us because yeah. Punisher is going to come and kill every single one of you to get to me so we're gonna all have to work together as one to take down frank so he gets everybody completely bought into his ideals and his beliefs before frank arrives and yeah i do think this is one of the most visceral scenes that we see i frank is just taken down by everybody around him by by completely taking away all of his senses of course so it is a a brilliant plan yeah and as you said like he's taken down he's taken down (laughs) hard and then the scene we get uh, where they're all standing around him, beating mm-hmm. him, is reminiscent of like this scene at the beginning, where they're Billy and Frank run through the, the the kind of wall of their fellow um, Marines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a strange one. I was expecting it to be like at least I was expecting Billy to get one swift kind of like the one that knocks Frank out. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. Yeah. So why? But he doesn't. He doesn't do anything. He just walks off. And I'm like, oh no, no, no! You know Frank better than this. It's like you know. <laughs> well, that's the thing. He does. And you know, watching it the second time, I suppose that makes it even more interesting. Because yes, watching it the first time, you see Billy standing over him, going, "Now, guys, beat him, break him, and then kill him," as he walks away. But that was not actually Billy's plan. Billy's plan is the plan given to him by by Dumont, which is break Frank properly. Yeah. Don't just kill him. Make sure he lives with the pain the way that you were supposed to be living with the death of his family. Um, so kind of, I suppose, let's continue on with our bullet points because bullet point number five is the lesson for Frank. Um, Frank does get out of this situation. Again, really interestingly, Billy, like a cult leader, has made all of these guys effectively join his group knowing that some of them won't be able to make it out. Um Billy said to them he killed one of their group because he wanted to take a bigger cut of money than any of the rest of them would, and he will do that to them as well. But they're still willing to follow him because they're still believing in the cause of Billy. This yeah. this whole gang of, as you were calling them, Chris, the, the jigsaws or the uh, the puzzles, as you were saying before, this gang is totally created now, and it feels realistic. It feels like something similar to, to say, Batman 66, where you used to have the Riddler and his gang and all of the people around, or the Penguin and his, his uh, minions, this feels just like a much more realistic version of this. They're all wearing masks. You can't pick out anyone in that room other than Billy. But they are all doing his exact bidding and all willing to lay down their lives for their leader. Definitely. Um, I mean, as you said, uh, Chris, you know, he's kind of like the, the commander. Um, Frank is the foot, foot soldier. Um, and here, uh, he, you know, he's really got his troops uh, in line to effectively lay down their life for him, yeah. ultimately. Uh, and, of course, he's being chased down now by Frank, as most of his team have been killed off by Frank. You know, they've they've wasted their advantage down in the, the kind of cellar area. But in some ways, that was always part of the plan of, of Billy. Exactly. Uh, because ultimately, what Billy wants to do here is to have Frank kill, or at least think he kills, um, the innocent people. Um, and, and to remove that idea that he is somehow uh, different from Billy Russo because he has this moral code where he won't kill uh, other people. You know, in effect, saying, you came in here blind your blind rage effectively has killed these three women mm-hmm. um and they um are on uh, your conscience uh, not billy's i mean the interesting thing is here we see him shoot this office up yeah. uh, with the machine gun so you do assume that they have been killed by him uh, but i wonder whether 
Billy effectively killed them beforehand mm-hmm. and, and r- ran through there knowing that Frank would be all guns blazing. Yes. Um, but again, it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting moment because we see him sort of wrangling with what he has seen in there. Uh, it's interesting at one point he does shout out Russo and that's where I think he possibly feels as though maybe Billy, um, had done it previously that it wasn't him. I, I yeah, I, I, I am right there with you that Billy killed these people. Billy and the puzzles. Yeah. Which sounds like a great band name. Uh, it's like it Gem does. and the, the fifties band. Gem and what was it? Gem and the holograms. Oh, Billy and the puzzles. Uh, <laughs> he completely did this. He completely killed them first and ran mm-hmm. through that as a tactical. And it's not it's not until you see that point that you actually understand, okay, why Billy didn't why Billy didn't go in for the landing blow? Why he mm-hmm. he knew his guys were going to get killed. He knew Frank was going to take them out, and yeah. then just ran through because he wanted to break. It's so ballsy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> can, can, can I ask a question though? If Billy has killed these three girls, mm-hmm. then that does lose the kick of what Dumont is trying to sort of impact on Frank because Frank will just go I'm still morally superior because I didn't kill them it was Billy so my feeling being is how do you make the point really stick home other than by Frank killing those three uh, women in in the office by shooting it up and I mean he did shoot it up pretty badly he really did it could have been that Billy placed them by the window so that they were assured to be caught in the crossfire but at the end of the day if there's any sniff that Billy did do this well then maybe that completely undermines what they were trying to do here that's why I think it's a little bit of a difficult one to call um, until maybe an episode or two later when possibly if Billy was the one to do it we probably would get shown that yeah I I agree and I I think I think that's exactly where we're supposed to be leaving this episode is we're supposed to think that uh, that Frank has done it. Frank thinks he's done it at the end of the episode. He doesn't think it's Russo. You hear him with saying, no, 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 wait, 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 uh, over and over again because he wants to assess the situation before anybody else comes in. He wants to find out, did he do it? Because it seemed like he likely did by shooting through this window blindly, uh, that he likely did kill these women. But he wants to have a second to breathe. That's why he's shouting, wait, wait, wait. And then shedding Russo, as in get Russo back here so we can work out exactly what happened here. Did you, did he do it? Did Frank do it? It's all a big question. But the NYPD walk in the door while Frank is completely freaking out that maybe he did do this. Um, one of the interesting things just to highlight as well, Dumont is not saying that Frank doesn't want to kill innocent people. Very specifically, she says, or finds out from Madani, Frank doesn't want to kill innocent women and children. It's a very specific thing. I know it sounds weird, but for example, every single person that he's killed on Billy's side are all men and he takes it he takes his gun and puts his gun directly to their brain and blows their brain out he hasn't killed any women throughout this series or throughout the first series and because that is because obviously his wife and children were murdered by uh, by the gang from Kandahar um, he has a a specific mental block to women and children I wonder if you do get a series of Punisher season three would you get a female antagonist would you get an antagonist that's against Punisher where he would have to question that choice of his to go after a woman that would be quite an interesting change for for frank but here it is billy putting three female prostitutes in a room to be killed by frank because that is his worst possible day yeah yeah no i i if they do do season three i think that would be a fantastic idea because it would really yeah it would be a real interesting struggle for him um, mm-hmm. I like the way that he's broken enough because if he he wasn't as broken as he is by the end of this episode, he would have gone through the cops. He would have escaped. Maybe, maybe. He wouldn't let himself be captured again. Um, mm, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Just interesting. Yeah. That's it. That's our top five points for this episode, guys. A um, couple of notes, I think, for the episode, John. Uh, definitely. Um, this was a boozy episode as well, <laughs> I, I found. Um, yeah. What was really nice, the red wine that was being poured uh, very liberally by Dr. Dumont uh, in her apartment was uh, labelled Decoy. Uh, the brand was Decoy, like um, which was quite a nice little <laughs> bit of yin and yang, I think, going on there in, in respect to that label uh, on the red wine. Yeah, that's definitely a production design choice, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. This woman's a decoy. Don't pay any attention to <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, that Minden Bourbon is still traveling uh, around New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's now at Robbie John the Pilgrim in Black's dive of a hotel room. Um, <laughs> Way I, too many names. Yeah, you? too many names. Like you said, Chris, um, what do we call this guy? So I, I, that's his new name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's Robbie John the Pilgrim in Black. Uh, but yeah, it's now at his dive of a hotel room. And of course, at the next door uh, room in the same hotel, uh, we kind of have uh, fellatio hooch here from Bob Wick's party. <laughs> um, and it seemingly does uh, make you see dead people or near death people. Interesting. Um, yeah. Um, this was the bottle of hooch. Couldn't grasp the the uh, brand uh, that the pilgrim was holding whilst he was being serviced in the hotel room. <laughs> Interesting. Fellatio hooch, you say. <laughs> <laughs> bourbon it looked like a whiskey but uh yeah couldn't quite get the label yeah interesting one interesting one uh, only other one that i caught for this episode was just the song that's playing at the end uh, fortunate son is the original was by credence Clear- clearwater revival a very popular song back in the 70s uh, may have heard it in a number of films based around vietnam war uh, obviously the character of frank Cassa was originally created during the vietnam war so some kind of connection there but what's really interesting i suppose if you're conscious of how they use music uh, in these shows like actual songs as opposed to uh, the the score for these episodes you get to the lines that are being sung in the song fortunate son and it's it ain't me is the the lines that are being sang as curtis is with the body of philip as he dies and as frank walks into the room uh, to discover the three women dead possibly at his hand the lines of the song that are repeating are it ain't me so it's effectively saying this is something that's completely against their character so nice little touch there in the episode excellent stuff one last note comes from one of our listeners a piece of feedback that we received for this episode comes from daniel shields i just thought it was interesting we're on episode 10 we're hearing loads of names for the character of the pilgrim and daniel shields has a little bit extra of information to to pass on to us he says hi gentlemen i wanted to pass on some information that i came across i know that you speculated that the pilgrim was an original character created for the show it appears he's actually based on a character called the mennonite He was created within the last 10 years and appears to have only lasted for about three issues of the comics. Like Pilgrim, Mennonite is deeply religious, has a terribly sick wife and two sons. It's pretty cool they dig up such an obscure character for this series. Keep up the great work, gentlemen. Regards, Dan Shields. Thanks so much for that, Dan. Yeah, and a really interesting one. I had to look this up afterwards just to just to see exactly what Dan was talking about. Um, the character is a Mennonite, um, but has never actually been given a name in the comic books. It is a Christian religion, but is mostly based on born-again Christians, people reneging their past and joining the religion. Um, so that would really patch in quite well with John Pilgrim in this, in this series, uh, that he is possibly a Mennonite. Possibly that is the religion that he's part of we may see some of that in the future but i suppose the character was never fully named in the book that does happen quite a lot with characters that come in and out of comic books for one or two issues so so yeah it's really interesting that they did possibly dig up this character from a very short run on the book yeah thanks dan for that it's really uh, good stuff I, I now have to call him robbie john the pilgrim in black mennonite there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and what are the one that we've never actually mentioned? Amy, the character. We did eventually get her named as Amy. That's her real name. Uh, in the comic books, there is a character also called Amy, um, who was a 12-year-old girl that uh, the Punisher helped out, uh, who was caught in the crossfire of, of a battle that Punisher was having. So, uh, so she is a character from the books, aged up obviously quite a lot. I think the story ends with the Punisher giving her back her doll's house can't really see this Amy caring about his old house unless it's full of a lot of money uh, that she might have stored in it maybe little marshmallowy Frank bringing back my little pony <laughs> so very different character but uh, but yes now she's also based on a comic book character very very marginally it feels like what, we see, what we're seeing with the Punisher we've mentioned it before while obviously the character is a Marvel comic book character and while obviously this character has appeared more in the Max series of books than the Marvel regular comic series. That's why he doesn't interact much with the other characters. It doesn't feel like they needed to go back very often to Marvel to ask for approval to use the characters that they're using in the show. I don't think they're taking too much guidance from the comics side of things to create characters for the show, but at least there's some little touches in there. Yeah. So, for like for example, the Mennonite was in Punisher Max 3 and was dead by Punisher Max 5. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, well, I've kind of got the A-team thing going around in my head now where it's kind of like, if you've lost your toys and no one else can help, call the P-team. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 the P-team nice. sounds bad. I'm just going to say that. He needs, <laughs> Punisher needs really. some marketing branding kind of help there. But, yeah. uh, yeah. Let's go for the Punisher team, definitely. Yeah. Guys, I think that's it for our notes and for our 
bullet points for the episode. Chris, do you defend The Punisher Season 2, Episode 10, The Dark Hearts of Men? I do defend this uh, episode. Um, and I also just want to say I also defended the previous episode too. Um, mm-hmm. So this has been a tough season. I'm not going to lie. It's kind mm-hmm. of dragged in certain areas. And I, as I said, I've actually gave my first ever not defend this season as well, earlier this season. It's picking up again, and especially because you brought in Steve Lightfoot, you brought in Alex Garcia Lopez. Like, this was always going to be a winning combination. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. Angela Lamana didn't do anything. I'm saying, like, uh, this this was a lovely team that really brought yep. out a fantastic episode. As And you, yep. see, you see this episode was both action-filled, but also highly dramatic from a character progression point of view. Yeah. So I do defend this episode. I still worry. Uh, and I've, I, I can't... Don't, Chris. Sorry? Don't worry, Don't Chris. worry, Chris. I Don't know, worry, Chris. I know, but I have to. We've only We're got three here. hours left. We've got three hours <laughs> of this season. That's, the, that's an extended Lord of the Rings. I know. But based on the pace that they're going, I don't know what will happen. Um, Did you see the pace of the Lord of the Rings? <laughs> oh, that's true. Okay. We've got at least one fellowship worth of a mo- movie content here. Mm-hmm. Do you see? Yeah, they could have definitely like easily f- kind of finished that whole journey just by hopping on the back of those eagles. One does not simply walk to Mordor. One can simply fly. <laughs> <laughs> you are not a, a book reader, Chris. They are not the taxi service of Middle Earth, as everybody <laughs> seems to think they are. But anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm scared uh, for, um, and as we said at the beginning, I think this was potentially Steve Lightfoot coming and going, no, we, we've gone slightly off track here. We need to rein it back in. Because usually they're in for the first two episodes and they're back for the end. He is the showrunner. I don't want to play down the experience of Steve Lightfoot. His job is to be in the writer's room at all times, but most of the writers go home to their home office, write their episodes and come back, and it gets kind of broken by the rest of the team. They point out what needs to be changed and tie it in with the other episodes, that kind of stuff. Steve Lightfoot is responsible for all the episodes. I think my question is, I'm wondering if he just wrote the John Pilgrim scenes and put them into this episode and the last episode, and they gave him credit for putting john pilgrim back in because they're not connected to anything else in the episode and in fact like they did with the other six episodes they could just leave john pilgrim out completely and it wouldn't affect the other stories because he's not interacting with anybody else in the show it feels like maybe steve lightfoot would like guys we're supposed to be barreling towards the end of a series here and you haven't even talked about my bad guy for six episodes <laughs> yeah and that's that's my issue that is 100 mm-hmm. percent my issue in that we are getting we are three episodes towards the the final curtain and we yep. still barely know anything about the the gay son, the the actual Schultz as, as a whole, aside from that yep. they're a mega corporation. Um, it's the whole thing. So I'm just like, all right, I defend this episode because this episode was fantastic. But Frank's now in custody. He has. We've got to spend a whole episode of him getting out of custody, and then we've got two episodes left. I'm like, yes. oh, one of those episodes is him killing Billy. And then one episode is him killing the man in Black Pilgrim, Mennonite, John, Wick, whatever. <laughs> like, I'm going to give him like, every name under the sun. Robbie, there we go. Um, that's an episode there. So that's your three hours. So we're barreling mm-hmm. to the end, and there's not that much time, and there's a lot of story. We need to know a lot more about the Schultz, their gay son, the the mayorship, the the the, the presidential campaign that they're trying to run. All of that yeah. needs to still be explained. And I worry that, as I said, we're barreling towards the end, and there may not be enough time. We may end up losing mm-hmm. some story to the side of the train because we've got no more track left. I'm just putting in every uh, analogy I can <laughs> to say I'm worried, people. Uh, but I really, I really defended this episode because it was really good. So on that <laughs> bombshell, well, it's not really a bombshell, more of a pop. Um, it's like a ooh, okay, there you go. Uh, that was like a little firework, you know, wee pop. Uh, on that note, John, do you defend this episode of The Punisher? 
Yes, I absolutely defend this episode of The Punisher. I give it five forehead dentures out of five. And I think they do like a neat little sort of Stonehenge on his forehead as well, sort of the five teeth that have been embedded into his uh, <laughs> his skull. For me, this is standout episode so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is in part down to the vision of the director. Um, it's really interesting. I don't normally uh, kind of latch onto directors in TV in the same way that I would i do with film for for whatever reason and yeah, yeah. um, maybe it's just the the time when you know as a, a young teenager i was watching tv i just didn't really think of the directors um but here uh, alex garcia lopez has really just sort of barreled into my eyesight uh, really uh, through daredevil because i just think it's a really interesting take it to me this episode felt really uh complex really intriguing uh, and really kind of giving those nods and, and moments to uh, and, and the relationships with the characters even if they are sort of not in a scene together i loved how it was interwoven both from the fight scene with the pilgrim to his recovery and, and him trying to fix himself back up to dumont and madani having this kind of face-off and discussion about who is most deserving of being given a break effectively is it frank or is it uh, billy and ultimately how that then is used by billy uh, to employ his strategy to turn around this assault on valhalla um by curtis and frank and then you have that rooftop scene with curtis and frank where uh you know, they, they, they talk about being life in the army, who you have your back for when you're in the heat of battle and when you're back as a, a civilian. Yeah. Uh, really, really nice. And this all just kind of linked together so well for me. Um, and I think all parts of it I really, really uh, enjoyed. Uh, so I absolutely defend this episode and I give it a whopping five out of five for sure. A really high rating for the episode, John. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, um, yeah, absolutely love this episode. So, Derek, do you defend this episode of The Punisher? Oh, absolutely. Everything here was fantastic. The re- direction, as you said, the writing was great. The performances that are on screen here from everybody, from Madani and, and Dumont to, obviously, Billy and Frank and to Curtis, all of our major characters here, fantastic. Um, John Pilgrim's uh, whole moments that he has, brilliant. Really, really good to see on screen. So much stuff here that, that I want, I've wanted to see for three or four episodes. And I love when a director can come in and point out exactly what I was talking about. As you said, Chris, as well, that fight sequence being just as brutal and violent as the Russian fight sequence, but measured and built and filmed and put on screen so much better than that gym scene, which just seemed to focus on the torture porn that was in there for people that love watching torture porn movies. This elevates the show. It's it's saying exactly the same thing, but just using your camera properly, saying the same thing, but using your writing properly, saying the same thing, but using the same stunt coordinator. You know, everything is the same. It's a TV show. It's not a, a sequel to another movie, but he's elevating the Punisher by his appearance here. And the writing is obviously wonderful as well. So, Great episode overall. Really, really enjoyed it. And I think that's probably the high point of the series so far. I'm hoping that they can go out in the high the next three episodes. We don't have anything to worry about. I hope that it does answer the questions that we want answered and end off in a big, wonderful moment for our characters at the end of this season. And I think this episode has kind of brought me back to the show completely. I'm really on board, really looking forward to the next couple of episodes. We are trying to fit in a bunch of recordings for our podcast to close out the season of, uh, of The Punisher and make sure that we keep two episodes going out each week as we get towards the end of the series. Uh, we will be back next week with episode 11 of season two of The Punisher, The Abyss. Um, we are going away, which means that we may not have it out on Tuesday like we normally do. We return on Tuesday, so it may be a little bit later on in the week, but we will definitely get our review of episode 11 uh, coming out very soon to you. As well, as I say, we are trying to fit in loads of our recordings, so our feedback is kind of lagging a little bit behind. We're not getting as much time to put out our our spoiler posts on the Facebook group before we run any thoughts that you have on any of the episodes for the rest of the season to us at feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com or pop onto our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash DefendersTVPodcast and let us know your thoughts on the series. We really want to hear from you as the rest of the season goes on. And we have a piece of feedback from Kristen Hall on this episode, episode 10. Uh, She says, well, that was hard to watch. I watched through my shirt for more than half of that episode. Brutal, unforgiving, sadistic, right down to Krista. She is off her rocker. (laughs) What do you guys think? Did Billy kill those women or did Frank? 
I had a really hard time with Pilgrim and the way he slid back into his old habits. It made me feel really uncomfortable. This episode was a really difficult one for me. Uh, thanks so much, Christian. I did respond on our Facebook group uh, to Christian's comments about this particular episode. Uh, I know she's continued on uh, through the rest of the episodes as well. But as we spoke about earlier on in this episode, I felt the director on this particular one, the ch- shots that he chose felt fine to me. I don't. I didn't feel like they were the ones that were glorifying the violence as such. Um, I felt like he was choosing shots to show that it was brutal and sadistic, but not showing sadistic and brutal shots, if that makes sense. So for me, it was kind of illustrated my point that I was talking about earlier on in the season where we were seeing a bit of the gorehound mentality as opposed to a director that knows how to use the scene and the shots well to get across the violence that actually showing it on screen. But I can totally understand that's, again, probably much more of a personal preference. Yeah, thanks, Kristen. Um, I really, you know, in a strange way, I really hope that Billy... Um, didn't kill the women and it was Frank. I, I must say, I really do hope that, you know, as this kind of evil mastermind, probably the mastermind of, of Krista, that, you know, they're, they're playing this in a complete way that they need to have Frank to sh- have shot these women and not Billy. Uh, but we'll find out, I suppose, on the next episode. Mm. Yeah. And in relation to the pilgrim, I think, um, I, I must say, I really loved how the fight scene cut back to him kind of recovering or trying to patch himself up. Um, but I do think it is uh, part of the, you know, that old saying that old habits die hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and confronted with his former neo-Nazi colleagues, he's back on the booze and the drugs, you know, to help um, sort of mend and heal his soul. Yeah. Not what uh, Eliza and Anderson Schultz would want, I, I suspect. Probably but, not. Uh, yeah. No. Thanks so much for the feedback, Kristen. Yes, and remember, you can subscribe at any Punishing or Pacifist podcast catcher over at DefendersTVPodcast.com. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts, amongst many. And remember to rate us or leave a review. To share the podcast is to share the love. Thanks so much for joining us, fellow Defenders. Talk to you next time. Thank you so much, people. And remember, if you're having a bad day, apparently some whiskey and a whore can make everything better. (laughs) thank you so much for listening fellow defenders as always it's been a pleasure i'm off to get my book signed by bob wicks uh hopefully he's there but if not it may be signed in his own blood um i suppose it depends whether he survived the pilgrim uh but once i'm back with a signed book we will be back to speak with you again soon bye Yes, the books are self-help books from Bob Wick, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Chicken soul for the soup, or in this case, cocaine <laughs> yeah. for the nose. Try that one more time, Chris. What did I say? Chicken soul for the soup. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. Chicken soup for the soul, or in this case, uh, lots of cocaine for the nose. And later you see Pilgrim sitting on the bed, um, having gotten some servicing from uh, from one of the... Uh, the Prostitutes. Jesus, Derek. Use your words. <laughs> Ladies of the night. Loose women. Hussy. Like Pilgrim, Mennonite is deeply religious, has a terribly sick wife and two sons. Pretty cool they dick up... Dick up? <laughs> Oops. It's pretty cool they dick up such an... I said it again. <laughs> it's the <laughs> job in this episode, obviously. It's pretty cool... <laughs> it's pretty cool they dig up such an obscure character for this series. That does happen quite a lot with characters that come in and out of comic books for one or two issues. So, um, so it's really interesting that they dig up. And I, I think really, yeah, it, it's the well-known saying, old dabbit. <laughs> it's a really well-known saying. Old dabbits. Old dabbits. Hi, dad. Hi, dad. <laughs>